0: Really my strategy, just in a nutshell, is it was really all about safety in the early years. It was like, look, focus on the things that I can control. Like I want to be the best salesperson that I can possibly be. So I, I tried to learn and get mentorship from everybody. I don't really like the word mentorship, but it's really more just like making friends with the folks that have what you want. And so you can learn the strategies that they have, really learn the ins and outs of negotiating what kind of roles to look for. And so I really focused my entire career on that.
1: Welcome, millionaires and future millionaires.
2: You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast, the show where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their portfolio allocation. Now to your host,
1: Jace Mattinson.
2: Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 326, Stace. We are full swing in November now.
3: I know. I can't believe the holidays are right around the corner. We we got some Christmas lights up this weekend. I mean, they're not on, but they're up.
2: That's correct. And we just had, from most of the reports out there, a record uh, Halloween in terms of consumer spending, which seems to be contradicting what a lot of the other media reports say. But I think probably the biggest news and personal finance this week granted i think probably for a lot of our listeners is probably irrelevant potentially just given kind of the data that we've collected lately but mint is shutting down and uh as of january 1st so they say they've got about three and a half to four million active users i used to be one of them i don't know probably eight ten years ago Uh, i've since gone away from it. it just doesn't you know the apis
3: why use mint when you could have an excel spreadsheet
2: well it's true right mint (laughs) mint has so many limitations it was unbelievable and you continually had to and this is probably one of the reasons they're shut down i don't know they didn't get into the details but one of the one of the issues is i'm sure that their advertising revenue and their engagement on there was getting worse and worse because all these banks and you know, investment companies that you were either tracking your net worth or your budgeting in there, they just make it more and more difficult, uh, you know, for security reasons to have connections into third party, you know, websites and apps. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons I don't, I don't know. I didn't read up too much on it. I know there's several other options out there, uh, if you're a budgeter, but data shows that a majority of our millionaires don't budget anymore. Anyway, they might have at one point, and hardly any of them, I would imagine, are paying for or checking things in in spending apps like Mint. But nonetheless, you know, three, four million users, pretty substantial out there. I think the product, you know, Mint's been around for quite a while. It probably peaked out at several million users. And uh, yeah, kind of a big deal. Stace, did you ever use any budgeting apps?
3: <laughs> well, I mean... That's kind of an embarrassing question because you see, I had like no money. (laughs) So, I mean, I graduated from college. I had $80 in my bank account after I paid my down payment for my apartment after that. And then, let's see, I was there for a year. Uh, So, I mean, I made money that year. That was the year I was working after college. Like real money, not college money. Uh, And then after that... I was in my 10-month uh, unpaid dietetic internship, and I was living off of what I saved the year before, and I was also living with my sister, so I to pay rent, and then we got married the next summer and then started doing all of our budgeting together. So, I didn't really keep a strong budget in college, um, and that year after, when I was working, I just didn't really spend a lot of money except for groceries and rent and you know, I didn't really do a lot of entertainment. Living, California is expensive, so you don't really pay for stuff. You just went to the beach. I didn't even pay for a gym membership that year. I just ran outside. So, and I think for Christmas I got, i my parents bought me, like, uh, a, a some packs of, like, workout classes. So, yeah. So, I didn't really use budgeting uh, in college or the year after. And then after that we got married and, and then we started budgeting together. So,
2: Which lasted about one month. I mean, for real. Let's be real. We had our first budget meeting and it nearly ended pretty poorly. So (laughs) then we decided we weren't going to do that anymore. I have such
3: a different perspective on this. (laughs) You were the one that didn't want to budget. We just, the goal was don't spend money. And that was like my goal for the first, I don't know, probably until our oldest was like two years old up until then I just my goal was don't spend money
2: yeah baby you live like no one else so later you can live like no one else right
3: (laughs) and then I was like you know what I'm not gonna tell him or ask that I need to buy like a few pairs of pants for my daughter for our daughter and that's yeah I mean and even still my goal is largely to not spend money and if I you know I mean I'm not as strict as I obviously used to be. But but yeah, there's never been like a super tight budget per se. That actually frustrated you to have a tight budget because you were like, well, sometimes we're going to spend more money here
2: it's than true. there. So it's true.
3: it was really more of a you thing than a me problem. Yeah,
2: but, but you also didn't love going over kind of the confines of, hey, this category, that category. Hey, we we're over in this one and that one. It was kind of a mutual thing. At any rate, it would be kind of an interesting episode, maybe one of these times, and maybe we need to get more into it with some of our millionaires and just budget philosophy and budget evolution in general. It's something that I've steered away, not steered away from, it just hadn't come up as much, but maybe we have intentionally steered away because I haven't asked the questions, but it just came up so much that the answer was no, we don't budget, so I quit asking it. Uh, and it comes in in our intake survey usually anyway, and overwhelmingly, overwhelming majority don't. And so I was like, well, why spend time on it if most aren't doing it? But at any rate, it would be kind of curious to see the evolution in general of budgeting, budgeting philosophy, and you know how millionaires approach it now. So on today's episode, we have Troy, the net worth of $2.2 million. He's in tech sales, but he's a former All-American athlete. So pretty cool story about how he kind of navigated through athletics and then into sales. And, you know, he at one point he was living out in the Bay Area on a whim and was renting Crazy Shack and all this stuff. So great story with him. You know, Last week we had Jane, we talked about the 18 summers. We also had a follow-up podcast on that on uh, Thursday to get a little bit more into the details of that. If you haven't left us a review yet, please go ahead and do so, Spotify or iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. But those are the two main mediums. In fact, Spotify is really coming on strong in the podcast game. They've got a whole lot of new tools to engage. So appreciate those. It keeps growing uh, significantly on there. Appreciate those that are uh, listening on Spotify. Uh, If you'd like to be on the show, if you haven't heard your story, reach out, millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Stace, next week, we celebrate our anniversary, the podcast anniversary. (laughs) I
3: was like, I'm sorry, what anniversary is this? Yeah,
2: the podcast anniversary. So, uh, yeah, we'll have some cool cool stuff that we'll uh, kind of quote unquote unveil next week on that and uh it's always kind of cool to look back and reflect over the years and evolution especially is quite a bit has changed in the last year as we brought you on as a new co-host so let's get into the interview with troy troy do you want to just give us a little about your background and what's up to you now
0: yeah absolutely uh first off thanks for having me on the show Longtime fan of the show so it's it's an honor to be on here speaking with you both um, so a little bit about myself, I right now I'm a uh, head of sales at a cybersecurity startup company. We basically try to protect companies from being victim to these crazy cyber attacks that you've probably read about in the news. Uh, definitely a hard problem to solve. It's been an exciting journey. Um, I pretty much had my entire uh, career built around uh, software sales, um, and yeah. Awesome. And what is your network today? So today my net worth is 2250000 rounding to the nearest thousand.
4: Nice. And uh, what's the breakup of that?
0: <laughs> so the breakup is, uh, like you would see in a typical portfolio, it's pretty diversified. Um, I have about $200,000 uh, between my 401k, both Roth and traditional, my wife and I. Uh, we have a Robinhood account that has about uh, 270000 in it. That's pretty much broken up into... Uh, you know, blue chip stocks, as well as uh, a few, you know, funds like VU, uh, the S&P, you know, the trail, the S&P 500, just sort of handpicked selection. Uh, we I have a um, Goldman Sachs account that is focused uh, primarily on my Google stock from when I was an employee there. So it's uh, their GSUs, uh, stock units that were provided from my tenure there. And then I have uh, a little bit in a health equity account. Um, I have very, very little in cash. We have uh, a little bit diversified uh, into a education account. It's actually a custodial account for our six-month-old. So he has a heck of a lot higher net worth than I did at six months. And uh, the rest of it is pretty much in uh, home equity and business equity from the startup I'm at.
4: Yeah. And we'll get a little bit into the, into the details there, but I want to go back to something you mentioned. So you got some, some stock from a former employer that mm-hmm. you've got placed. Why keep it there? Why not sell it? Do you want to diversify that or what's kind of the strategy with that in particular? Because I know a lot of people end up in that situation where they either get it from a publicly traded company or whether it's a startup or whatever. Just kind of curious your, your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, so I was only at the company for about two and a half years. Um, when I joined the company, it was in the midst of the pandemic in 2020. I actually, joined joined in March of 2020. Uh, when I got the offer, I was super excited about joining the company. It was a it was a pretty senior position. And when I emailed my manager to uh, you know ask him where I show up on day one, I didn't hear from him for almost a month. So I thought for sure they revoked the offer. Um, you know, I had heard about a lot of people being laid off, and so you know, when I joined the company, uh, part of my negotiation strategy was to actually ask for more equity in stock versus salary and commission, which is typical for a sales rep. Because I had known that you know, if you look at the S and P over since it's basically existed, you know, they have these major dips when these uh, kind of pandemics and economic declines happen, but it always ends up winning in the long run, you know, and so. I thought if I negotiated higher on the equity side of things that in the long run I would win and so I'm pretty happy that it actually turned out to be in my favor um and it's actually you know far exceeded what I would expect it to be and then when I when I was at the company I thought about potentially after leaving selling some of it and diversifying it into you know other uh you know stocks like you mentioned but to me I just thought that like based on what my long-term goal is in terms of net worth and where I want to end up It's such a minuscule amount that having that much allocated into, you know, one specific stock that I actually believe in, you know, isn't, isn't too much of a risk. And so I just decided to keep it for that purpose. Uh, My strategy has been just kind of leave it, forget it. And, you know, I'll look back at it in 20 years and, you know, hopefully it's, it's something meaningful that I, that I might want to pull out and use for either a real estate investment or, you know, college tuition, something to that effect.
4: Gotcha. Interesting. So, in terms of how you've built your portfolio over the last, I mean, we'll get into the the equity and the home equity and, and some other things later. But in terms of hey, you know, graduate college, did you immediately start investing in company four hundred one k plans? What was the mindset going into to those first few years, uh, you know, in your working career?
0: Yeah. So I have a pretty interesting uh, story about how I got into this field. If you'd be interested, I could tell you a little bit about it. Um, it's definitely not a traditional path by any means, but hopefully it can inspire some folks. Um, so let me know. I'd be happy to jump into it if you'd like. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Yeah. So I went to college. I went to UCLA. Um, actually I, you know, I, I grew up in a family. Uh, my dad was actually an immigrant to the U S uh, and, um, you know, he, like I, I grew up in a family where like education was really a core centerpiece of the family. It was all about getting good grades, setting yourself up for the best success to go to college. My older brother prescribed to that pretty well. Uh, he set the bar pretty high, I'm not gonna lie. He was the valedictorian at my high school. Uh, it was pretty much unreachable and I had all the same teachers as him coming a few years later. Uh, and so for myself, I always thought like, I can't keep up, but I wanted to differentiate myself. And so I kind of turned to athletics early in my life. And um, you know, I was a multi-time All-American in high school and track and field. And actually, very luckily, got recruited to a lot of universities for that, Um, knock on wood, you know, never got injured. And I was able to actually, you know, make ends meet uh, from that standpoint. Even when I started getting recruiting letters from universities, my my parents didn't believe it. They thought there's no way they're going to pull the rug out from under you. You need to keep retaking the SAT. So I probably retook this test like six or seven times. They probably burned a couple thousand dollars on me taking these tests just because they didn't believe that this was actually going to to play out. Luckily, uh, it all worked out well. I actually got a scholarship to, to compete in track and field at UCLA. And so that was pretty much my entire life. I mean, I didn't have any thought about what I was going to do after college. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't go to any career fairs while I was in school. You know, I didn't even so much as like, honestly, I wasn't a great student either. You know, I, I was very average student. And so probably around my junior or senior year, I actually started to think a little bit more seriously about it. My brother had had some success in the tech world, um, starting a few startup companies. And so for myself, I thought like, shoot, I better get my stuff together because I'm going to be in trouble here. And so I, when I graduated, I actually moved up to the Bay Area on a whim in the middle of the night. Uh, I got very, very lucky. Uh, my, I had a connection to basically live in a, A place for very cheap in Palo Alto. Uh, And so um, I actually called my best friend at the time, who was also on the track team at UCLA. I convinced him. That was the first sale I ever made. I convinced him to join me uh, to come up to the Bay Area. And we had maybe a couple thousand dollars to our name each. And we actually were able to secure rent at a shed in the back of a house in Palo Alto. We literally lived in a 280 square foot shed. It was, it had, we, we didn't have any AC, you know, there was no bathroom, no kitchen, nothing. I mean, literally, and it was still $600 each per month to live in the shed. I mean, that was Bay area rent for you. And I mean, you just do the math, right? We had a couple thousand dollars each. We've got maybe two and a half months of runway here if we're eating, you know, beans and rice. And so, uh, we got a gym membership to 24 hour fitness. We woke up every morning at 6. AM we would hit the gym. And we would go immediately to Starbucks and just start applying to jobs. And I mean, it was a total black hole. Like I interviewed for the most hilarious jobs, like senior director of marketing, like vice president of sales. I mean, I had no experience and I was just shooting my resume out to a black hole. I didn't hear back from anybody. Just hustle, hustle, hustle. Eventually caught the attention of a sales manager at Oracle who hopped on a call with me and basically told me that, Hey, there's a university program. We're currently recruiting from the top universities. It was like maybe 10 or 15 universities in the country, University of Texas, UCLA, Berkeley, Stanford, a few few of the the bigger names. And he's like, it's actually way past due to get you into this program, but I have a couple of spots left. If you're interested in it, it's dirt cheap pay, but I can probably put you through the ringer real quick to see if you'd be a fit. So I just said, let's go for it. Did a couple of reference checks and uh, you know, ultimately got my start as a, very, very entry-level salesperson at Oracle. Uh, so I didn't plan on getting into sales. I didn't, you know, I didn't come from a family history of being, you know, salesy or anything like that. I just basically took the first opportunity I got and I got extremely lucky. The first day I joined, I knew right away I was going to spend my entire career in this. I had a knack for it. I loved it. And so that's pretty much kind of the beginning of of uh, where I am today.
4: <laughs> wow, that's pretty crazy.
0: Yeah, I mean, looking back at it, it's... uh kind of crazy how it all worked out. Uh, I actually have probably told that story too many times. Uh, that friend that I told you about that joined me, uh, he actually just got married in Croatia a few months ago and I gave the best man speech and I mentioned that story as well too. So <laughs> that story comes up quite often, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty crazy.
1: I just need to know when you were in the shed, did you at least get a um, like a driving lawnmower that you could use for transportation? Was that part of the deal or... <laughs>
0: So we actually, uh, luckily my friend's parents lent him his Ford Taurus. And so we actually packed all of our stuff into this Ford Taurus. It was hilarious. And, uh, you know, we bought one of those like portable wardrobes where you can just put things on hangers. And, uh, I mean, I don't think I did my laundry for six months, right. Until we actually had enough money to move into the house, which was actually our next move. Eventually we we started getting a salary. And so we decided to move from the shed into the house. Uh, the guy that owned the house actually just rented out a bunch of different rooms to like startup founders. And so it was like a traditional tech incubator. If you've ever seen the show Silicon Valley, it was very much like Silicon Valley. Um, but I'll tell you a funny story since you, since you brought it up, the shed was just a disaster. I mean, it was, it was like, I I honestly can't even believe like now with my lifestyle, there's no chance I would ever be able to pull this kind of thing off, but we couldn't, uh, we couldn't fit beds in the shed. I mean, it was 280 square feet. So were two grown males. We couldn't fit beds in there. And so what we did is we went to Target and we literally bought air mattresses. They were $20 each. And we just blew them up and put them in the room. They were like twin air mattresses. And I'm not kidding you. Every two or three months, one of us would just wake up in the middle of the night. And all we would hear is <sighs> the sound of one of the air mattresses, the air would just be going out of one of the air mattresses. We went through like 10 or 12 of these things in a single year and we just had to keep rebuying them and then eventually we were just like screw this and we just slept on the floor. <laughs> so we were like sleeping on this freezing cold floor and uh you know we just made it work. I mean we were we were excited, you know, and I think that 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 was like the big thing here is we both kind of found a, a career path that we were really excited about and the little details didn't matter, you know, like where we lived. I mean we were 22 years old and we just kind of went for it.
4: It's funny. I'm reminded of, of of a couple things. One, some some Drake lyrics and start at the bottom and now we hear. But uh, <laughs> when I met my wife, I was sleeping on an air mattress too. <laughs> she didn't know that, I don't think, for a little while, but it was a uh, temporary housing, not quite a shed. It was actually a pretty decent place in Arlington, Texas, <laughs> and it had a pool, which is all we cared about in Texas. But uh did right. Not have furniture. I was sleeping on an air mattress, so uh, I can I can relate to that a little bit. And uh, the 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 air seeping out of it multiple times and pumping it up constantly. <laughs> it's oh terrible. yeah, terrible. <laughs> Good times.
2: Listen up, millionaires and soon to be millionaires. Do you ever buy anything online? I know I do. In fact, some of my favorite places to purchase are online. Do you know some of those? favorite places that you buy from there's some amazing websites out there and many of them are powered by Shopify Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage and all the way in between to we just hit a million dollar order stage yep Shopify is there to help you grow Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading e-commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash unveiled, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash unveiled now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash unveiled. And thanks again to Shopify for supporting today's episode. So in terms of getting started, you get this first
4: job with Oracle and and you get a career in sales started. Did you start putting money away into a a Roth or a 401k or what was kind of the mindset? And when did you start kind of making your investments?
0: No, not at all. So, um, I got paid nothing. I mean, we were living in the Bay area. My salary was 45,000 a year. I had a $2,500 signing bonus, which is just like a joke when you think about the tax rate. I mean, it was like a thousand bucks after taxes, so it basically just, it was my next month's rent, essentially. Um, and then there was a 30, 30K, sorry, not 30%, 30K variable, which if I were to hit my quota, it would equate to about 30,000 in commission. And so my all-in comp was essentially 77,500 for my first year. It doesn't sound terrible, but when you live in San Francisco Bay Area, right, it's it's far below the poverty line. I mean, there was no money to put into uh, into any kind of investment. And so um, all the money was being used just so that we could move out of the shed and just live in it, the house, right? Because the rent went from 600 a month to 1200 a month when we actually moved into the into the house. And we were splitting that. So it was $2,400 for a room in the house and we each paid $1,200. And so um, when you do the math, right, between that and just lifestyle eating and everything else, Um, And then of course I had to put a down payment on a car. That was all my money. I mean, I wasn't able to save any money in that first, first job.
1: So you saved nothing the first job. When did you really get started in your, in your wealth accumulation?
0: Yeah. So just to paint the picture for you a little bit more about this, this role I had at Oracle, this was part of a big push that they were making. Uh, Actually, I know you guys are based in Texas, the CEO of Oracle at the time, his name was Mark Hurd he started this university program. He's actually from Texas. He went to Baylor university. He basically had this opportunity to join a big tech company right out of college. And so he felt like it was his way of giving back by starting this university recruiting program. And so his idea was let's hire a bunch of these young hungry and dumb college kids with ambition. Let's pay them nothing and have them go cold call and make a lot of money for our company. And so, um, The way that they kind of hooked people into the role was that, obviously, if you perform at a high level, there's these opportunities to move up within the company. And now Oracle is obviously a Fortune 100 company, so the opportunities are limitless. Although it was very, very difficult to actually move into these other roles. And so when I joined, I asked right away, like, what does it take to get into the next level of my sales career, which was at the time a field sales role. So I was an inside sales rep you get promoted to a field sales rep, you work with bigger customers, you close bigger deals, you can make a heck of a lot of money. There were people that were in their mid to late 20s, you know, making half a million dollars up to a million dollars a year. And so, I was sold the dream and I went for that. A couple of years into the role, you know, the they they just kept moving the goalposts. It was, "Hey, perform at this level, we'll put you, you know, we'll put your hat in the ring to interview for these positions." And it very typical of corporations, right? Um, you know, the, just the goal, the goal posts get moved. And so after a couple of years, I basically just said, you know, I had some good mentorship and I just said, you know what, this isn't the right path for me. For me, I need to, I need to get my hands on bigger accounts because I felt like I was ready to close these bigger deals. And so I actually jumped companies and I went to one of their competitors after two, a little over two years being at Oracle. um, And I took a 50% pay raise. And that was the first opportunity when I joined that company. I said, I'm going to do it right this time. And so I started opting into the 401k. That was essentially my first uh, investment platform that I started doing. So it was about two years after I graduated college that I started investing. And I think I was doing the very bare minimum just to get the match.
1: Wow. So what? how long did it take you from the time you started investing to reach your first millionaire status?
0: Yeah. So I started investing. I was 24 years old. I reached millionaire status by the time I was 28
1: that's some that's some speed. you must have worked on speed a lot in your track career.
0: yeah yeah I guess I guess that's one way to put it. Um, you know in in software sales, really there's no glass ceiling in terms of what you can earn. Um, you know you make a percentage of whatever deals you close and so it's not uncommon actually that you find people with only a few years of experience you know earning half a million dollars. a lot of it comes down to, You know, there's a, there's a, there's a level of luck. If you ask any software sales rep, there's always a level of luck involved in terms of the territory you're given, um, you know, and the accounts you get to work. And so, um, it's actually not uncommon. And so for me, like my entire career has been really focused on how can I become the best salesperson that I can be. And I focused so much of my energy and time on shadowing calls from the best salespeople in every company I worked on, uh, worked at. I would spend hours after the after getting off of work to you know spend time with these folks to learn the strategies that worked for them, and to me, you know, I didn't I didn't really concern myself too much with like the everyday how much am I saving type of thing because in my in my mind I thought that eventually my time is going to come and I'm going to have one of these W two years, and it, at that time I'll be able to save you know, to purchase property. I could, I can make that happen within a year, right? If I have one of these successful years. So for me, it was all about equipping myself to be prepared for when my moment came, you know, and we could talk a lot about that. Cause I think that's, that's definitely something that is different with how I've viewed my entire investment strategy, my entire life. Um, I've set myself up so that my lifestyle kind of maintains at a certain way, because I want to, I want to wake up in the morning. I want to be happy. I want to be energized. I want to be ready to work. Because again, the earnings potential is so high in this field that to me, you know, spending a little bit extra to keep myself prepared for those moments is the most important thing.
1: Yeah. So let's dive in. Tell us about how you got such fast legs those four years financially. Yeah, Um, totally. First first start with the 401k and and take us from there.
0: Yeah, totally. So um, uh, I basically started investing in the 401k when I joined uh, my second company after Oracle. Um, it was very minimum. Like I said, I think it was like a 3% match. And so I just kind of, you know, did whatever I had to do there. And then I earned my second, uh, basically my first two years at Oracle were, uh, I think I earned $67,000. My first year was my first W2 and my last W2 in 2022 was 677,000. So it was about a 10 X multiple in an eight year period. And so I can kind of walk you through um, kind of how the W-2s looked and and, and what my strategy was. Uh, and so when you get into any career field, I think one of the main things that people tell you is that you know loyalty is, is extremely important to the company, join the company, stay at the company for a very long time. And to be completely honest with you, that's the exact opposite advice I got from some of the most successful people in the tech field. They actually started to tell me that, when they go to hire people for specific sales manager positions or sales VP roles, or really senior C-level positions, it's actually a red flag to them. If you've stayed at your company for too long because they view it as somebody that got comfortable and didn't go out of their way to learn new skills. And so I can give you an idea of what I mean by that. Every time I made a jump and I can walk you through how many jumps I made, it's pretty astronomical. You'll be shocked actually how many times I jumped companies, but every time you jump a company, as part of the interview process, you have to sell yourself to whoever you're interviewing with, you know, the VP of sales, the CEO, in some cases, if it's a startup, the board of directors, and you have to tell them everything that you're going to accomplish in your first 30, 60, 90 days, and you have to convince them of this. And so as I went through these interview processes, I actually thought about it very, you know, concretely, I said, okay, here's what I think I can add. Here's the skills I've acquired. Here's what I can do for you in the first hundred days. And then when you get the offer. They make you a great offer. you join it's a sink or swim situation every single time in sales. It's not like engineering or accounting or one of these fields where sometimes there's a gray area you can't really tell how someone's performing. in sales it's very it's very simple to tell. I mean, there's leaderboards, right? And so you know like if someone's not hitting their quota two, three, four quarters in a row, you're gone. I mean I, I know very few organizations that that keep somebody around. I sure as heck wouldn't keep keep someone around that isn't isn't hitting their quota you know that many quarters in a row. And so you get into these situations of sink or swim where you've now talked up a big game essentially, and now you got to back it up. And so you join these companies and now you have to perform at a high level. Once you do this two or three times, you're learning a lot of skills subconsciously, whether you know it or not, which is you're learning how to ramp up quickly. You're learning how to just absorb the material enough to get to where you can actually start having conversations with customers. You're learning how to take customers through deal cycles faster because you're wanting to show these results quicker. And so you're, you're more or less, you know, taking shortcuts, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. I always go back to the quote by Bill Gates. He says, uh, you know, if you want to get a job done in a quick manner, you find the laziest person in the room because they'll always know the shortcut to get there. And I love that quote because in sales, a lot of that is, you know, you see people wasting their time, you know, they, they focus on the wrong thing. And so by taking this approach that I had of jumping multiple times, I actually forced myself to get, um, you know, very efficient with my onboarding process, so that I could actually get quicker time to value, which was closing customers, right, in a sales mindset. Um, so yeah, just to walk you through a little bit of that, uh, you know, I did one hundred forty thousand dollars on that third year. So I went from sixty-seven thousand dollars my first year at Oracle to very marginal increase in the second year. Like I said, they just kind of kept moving the goalposts. My comp plan didn't really increase. I think I probably went up to maybe seventy or seventy-two thousand in that second year. That third year, I doubled it and I went up to about 140,000. And uh, when I was at that company, they told me, uh, you know, I noticed that there was actually a position for a slightly bigger uh, account base that they were hiring for. And so I put my hat in the ring and I said, why don't you promote me to this position? I'm ready for it. I hit my quota in the first year. You know, I'd like to move into this position. And uh, not great sales leadership. They, They just kept interviewing people outside, a lot of wasted time. Uh, and so I kind of got frustrated with that process and I jumped companies after eight months. So I actually hit my quote in the, in the first eight months of the year, made 140,000 really in about eight months. And then I jumped companies again to an even smaller startup company. Uh, and I increased my comp. I did about 240,000 that next year at a startup company. And then, um, I stayed there for a year. I vested my first year of shares at that company. And I went to my VP of sales and I said, Uh, when I joined the company, the comp plan that they had actually structured for me was a $90,000 salary and a $90,000 on target earnings, which is basically $90,000 in commission if I were to hit my quota. And so my total comp for the year was 180,000 split between half base, half commission. And, um, I far exceeded that plan. However, there was another salesperson. It was a very, very small startup company. There were about 15 people and I was the second sales hire that was brought in. The first sales hire that they brought in, uh, I became pretty good friends with him, and and he was making a hundred and forty thousand dollar salary and a hundred and forty thousand dollar variable. So two hundred and eighty total, a hundred thousand more than me. And he actually performed quite a bit worse than me. And so I thought, here's my opportunity to justify why I deserve a raise. And so I came to them with this proposal to, to pay me 125, 125. And I was essentially laughed out of the room. The VP of sales told me, you know, come back to me in another year. And I started having flashbacks of my time at Oracle. And I said, here we go again. The goalposts are being moved. And so I said, well, screw this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what's working for me. And so I jumped again. And I actually went to another startup company, their biggest competitor. And uh, I negotiated a 115-115 compensation plan. Uh, and I was there for about eight and a half, nine months. Um, I hit my quota. And then we got acquired. Uh, and so um, CEO came into the office one day and he said, hey, sales team, I want to talk to you each individually. He brought us each into a room and he told us that we're being acquired. And he said, you have two options. Either you can interview for a position at the company that's acquiring us, but I can't help you there. You're on your own. Oh, and by the way, the comp is a significant reduction, but at least you'll have a job. Or I can pay you three months in advance salary and I'll be a good reference for you at another company. And so it was kind of an interesting time in my life. I had just met uh, my wife at the time and uh, we'd been dating for a while and she was planning this trip to Thailand with her cousin and she was begging me to go. She was like, you got to come with us. It's going to be so fun. I told her, I was like, girl, I only get two weeks vacation a year. I can't just go to Thailand for a month. (laughs) And so um, when this opportunity came around to get three months salary in advance, I called her and I said, Hey, do you still want me to come with you to Thailand? (laughs) And she said, yes. Yes. And so I literally took the three months advance. I booked my flight that day and I went with her to Thailand and the hours are completely flip-flopped there. And so it was kind of only half a vacation. My entire time that I was there, I was actually, uh, interviewing for my next position and ironically enough, I actually got asked to come back to Oracle, uh, for my next role. And so I actually went back to Oracle in the senior position that I was trying to get directly out of college. Only this time they had to pay me $300,000 to get me. My, my compensation was 150, $150, And, uh, I even made a joke about it in the interview process. I said, you could have got me for a heck of a lot cheaper if you just trusted me two years ago. Um, and I, I performed, I performed at an extremely high level. This was probably when I was really starting to hit my stride. Um, I felt like I was super confident. I didn't matter what deal cycle you threw me in. I knew how to build a connection with the the right folks and I knew how to get to the decision maker very quick. And so I did that for a year. I got promoted uh, at the end of the year. And I actually thought I was going to kind of sit my career there for a while. Um, And then one of my buddies uh, called me from Google and said, hey, there's this unique opportunity. We're going after Amazon's business and we're looking for, you know, five key account holders. We're going to give you very strategic accounts. It's an extreme sink or swim position. It's going to be very high paying, high reward. But if you're not performing in six months, you're going to be let go. So I asked my wife, I said, is this, is this the move for me? And she said, you've never backed down from a challenge before. So I went for it, I moved to Google um, and that's, that's where I had my best W2 years. My first year at Google, I W2'd 480. And then the second year I was there, I W2'd, like I said, about 667,000. So about 10 X from my original year. So that's kind of brought me to this, this most recent role.
1: Amazing. So what are you doing with all this extra cash you're acquiring along the way?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, the great question. So I, have diversified it. Like I said, uh, when I joined Google in 2020, uh, it was kind of always in my mind to buy property. And so the market was kind of taking a hit at this time. I had probably my first, this is my first year at Google. So just to back up, this is my first year at Google. This is 2020. And uh, I joined in March and I had gotten this sign on bonus and I had probably maybe $140,000 total net worth, give or take. And I really wanted to buy property, but it was impossible in San Francisco, uh, where I was living at the time. And so um, I actually uh, moved to Granite Bay, where I live now, uh, which is just outside of Sacramento. And um, the market was just starting to take a a hit, if you recall, in 2020. Houses were going down maybe about 4%, 5%. And I was a little bit worried that it was going to be a 2008 repeat but I just kind of trusted my gut and went for it. And I bought a house for, uh, about $520,000 and put a 20% down payment. And so that was kind of my true first big investment. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I had owned property at that point there. I was, you know, like I said, just trying to max out my 401k as much as I could up to my match. Um, and then as part of my Google offering, I was also starting to acquire, uh, some Google stock units. Uh, and so that was, that was pretty much my diversification strategy up to that point. And then in the second year, when I had the big W two earnings year, I had very, very little expenses. My mortgage payment was just over $2,000 a month and, uh, all in, I was probably spending no more than $4,000 on a monthly basis. I was very frugal. Uh, and so when I had this $667,000 W two year, I had a lot of money kind of disposable. And so. I kind of just started to take a diversification strategy i put a little bit into crypto i put a little bit into mutual funds i put a lot into Robinhood. i was kind of picking my favorite companies uh obviously being in the tech space i had a, a decent eye for it at least i think i do <laughs> and so i just kind of started picking and choosing stocks that way and kind of the portfolio started to slide slowly climb from there
4: awesome so quite the career trajectory in such a short amount of time One thing I bet our listeners are asking is you've grown this W-2. I mean, clearly you probably got a tax bill every year that's pretty significant, correct? Totally.
0: Yeah. How fun is that to pay? Uh, Not (laughs) fun. Not fun. I actually joke about it all the time, but I'm still trying to find a way to not pay it.
2: (laughs) I (laughs) can't. Right. Big, big tax. This show is supported by Delete Me. In today's digital age, our personal information is more vulnerable than ever often scattered across countless websites and databases. Delete.me has been my solution for taking control of my online presence and ensuring my personal information remains private. Delete.me makes it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. There are some bad people out there. Have you ever heard of somebody getting doxed? Doxing is when someone discovers your real identity and shares your personal information publicly. Most people who do this get your info from people search sites, social media, and forums. Delete.me helps prevent this from happening by removing data it finds, like your name, age, email, phone number, and more. One of my favorite parts, the service doesn't stop at a one-time removal. Delete Me provides on- ongoing monitoring to ensure that your data doesn't reappear. If it does, they take immediate action to remove it again. And they have an awesome online dashboard that helps you track your data reports. So what are you waiting for? Don't let your online past define your future. Take control with Delete.me. Now get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom slash MU20 and use promo code MU20. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash MU20 and enter promo code MU20 at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash MU20, promo code MU20. And thanks to Delete Me. Supporting today's episode, Phil. So, going
4: forward, I mean, you've got this great sales career. You've obviously got the appetite to do startups. You know, where do you go from here? What's the? Do you have a target net worth? Is there something that you're looking? You know, out in the horizon, you're trying to get to. Kind of walk us through that a little
0: bit. Yeah. So um, we didn't really get into it too much, but you know, f- for me, like I, I kind of always had this vision to. Be an early salesperson at a startup company, grow with the company, get acquired or go public, and you know make a large sum of cash. And that was going to be my my exit strategy. And then you from I have there been moving,
4: acquired every eight, every every eight months, bro. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, they weren't great acquisitions. I mean i i I've learned I've learned how to negotiate over the years, and and uh, you know focus more on the equity component um, so that I could actually. Enjoying those acquisition, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, events that happen. But um, yeah, so I, I, so, so, so great question. So I think really my strategy, just in a nutshell, is it was really all about safety in the early years. It was like, look, focus on the things that I can control. Like I want to be the best salesperson that I can possibly be. So I, I tried to learn and get mentorship from everybody. I don't really like the word mentorship, but it's really more just like making friends with the folks that have what you want. And so you can learn the strategies that they have, really learn the ins and outs of negotiating what kind of roles to look for. And so I really focused my entire career on that. When I did start to make decent money, I thought like, let's cover all the bases. So max out the 401k, buy a house, put as much money as we can into the stock market. It's easy. It's, I don't need to manage anything. I really don't want to do anything where I have to manage any work at all. My dad is a big real estate guy. I thought about possibly buying a rental property along the way. And I just said to hell with that idea because I don't want to do any work unless it's focused on me building my skills, stick to my core competencies has always been kind of my, my core, uh, principle for myself is just become as good as I possibly can at what I'm good at. Once I got to that point, I, I thought about potentially just staying at Google for the rest of my life. I had earned President's Club a few years in a row. I was in a very comfortable position. They were kind of grooming me up to move into a sales manager and eventually a sales director role. And then, family member of mine decided, you know, went out and started another company that I had a perfect skill set for, uh, basically, you know, complementing, uh, complementing his skill set. And so, uh, you know, he came to me with this proposal to join this startup company. This is where I'm at today. It's a cybersecurity tech startup. And he said, "I want you to come and lead sales for me." Uh, and so I kind of was in this pickle: do I stay in this comfortable position, do I just write it out, and, or do I go and take this leap of faith, right, and and work harder than I've ever worked before and make this thing happen? And it honestly, I'm making, I'm building it up to be a lot more than it actually was. It was really a two second decision. To me, it was a no brainer. Like, let's let's go for it. Because to me, I covered the bases. I had a million dollar net worth at 28. I just knew, based off comp you know, compounding interest, that I would be fine, you know, I wasn't going to be on the streets. And so for me, it was all about shooting for the moon. And so I took this opportunity to to join the startup, uh, where there is a, a very large potential exit strategy in mind. To answer your question about goal target net worth, it was very difficult for me to think about this. I mean, I, I don't know if I have a specific number in mind. Um, I like the number $500,000 passive income, it just sounds like there's no restrictions on your lifestyle. And you could do whatever you want, and um, you know, given given where I'm at right now at my age, I feel like shooting any lower than that, I would kind of just be doing myself a disservice and and not working hard enough. And so I kind of set the target as 12 million. You know, if you get anywhere from like a four to five percent kind of uh, you know return on that, you're looking at about a half a million dollar annual passive income. And so that's kind of in the target in the back of my mind. Who knows what I'll do from there? I very know I I very may well move the goalposts. As they've been moved on me, and I may actually up that goal. So who knows? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Comes around, goes around a little bit. I hear you. So in terms of uh, now going and working and taking this risk and 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 going to a new startup or another startup, do you think you would have made that decision had you not had that million dollar net worth?
0: I think I think if I was if it was anybody other than a family member asking me, probably not. But I think assuming I didn't have that net worth and it was the same family member that asked me, I probably still would have, but that's a rare case. That's because I trust this person very much. And so I, I, it was a bucket list goal of mine. And so I probably would have done it regardless, but I'm not suggesting it. Right. I I don't think, uh, eventually you have to stop jump, jump, job hopping. So, you know, I kind of go back to my whole point earlier of it's good in the early stages of your career because you can, get up more opportunities, you can actually grow your skill set. your, you know, your, your feet are put to the fire, you're kind of in a flight or fight situation, and you have to see what you're made of. And so I think it's very important early in your career. But once you have an established position, and you get to a, a certain stage in your career, jumping companies to make a marginal 5% increase, it's almost not worth the risk and the stress that comes with kind of onboarding and having to prove yourself over and over again. And so I was kind of at that position where it was very difficult i was really in a good situation and i probably wouldn't have ever done it if it wasn't for this family member asking me to join the startup
4: yeah for sure so real quick i mean working with family any any advice to those out there that are working or considering to work with family
0: yeah totally i think probably the biggest piece of advice i would give is somebody has to be in charge like in this situation it was very clear because the family member was the ceo and so They were actually were in charge. But what I mean is somebody needs to submit in terms of like the, someone gets the final say here because you can't let family get involved at the end of the day, it's business. And so when I joined the startup company, I was very adamant about telling the CEO that if I wasn't performing up to par to fire me, I mean, just simple and plain. Like if I'm not performing at a certain level that you expect me to don't do me any favors because I want I want him to be successful. I mean, at the end of the day, he's my family. And so I care a lot about his success. And so if I'm actually bottlenecking the company and anchoring it down because my performance is subpar, then get rid of me, right? I'll watch from the sidelines. I'll be fine. I'll go get another job, done it 10 times. I could do it again. And that was my mindset going into it was, you know, do the very best I can to never let that situation come true. But if it does happen, there has to be some clear path of what happens in an emergency situation because you're not doing anyone a favor. I mean, keeping me around in a position that's not, that I'm not doing well and it's just going to, you know, tank the company. That's the best advice I have.
1: What sort of role has your wife played in this wealth accumulation or financial journey?
0: Yeah. So honestly, without my wife, none of this would have been able to happen because I've alluded to it uh, earlier when I was chatting with you guys before the podcast, but we have a six month old baby. Now Uh, we had a baby boy in January and uh she actually chose to step away from her career to take care of the baby. We didn't really set a time frame here for how long this would be, but the time frame we had in mind for starters was at least a year. And so, you know, without her doing that, I wouldn't have the flexibility to meet the demands of this job that I have. The hours are very iffy. Sometimes you work Seven hours. Sometimes you work fifteen hours. You just have to work until the job is done. And joining super early on, I was, I was the go-to-market person. And so anytime there was an inbound lead or anything that you know revolved around sales, I had to be available. And we have customers in Europe. We have customers in Asia. So the hours get very wonky. I mean, it wasn't uncommon that I was taking calls at seven or eight o'clock at night. And as you both know, uh, you know, with a with a infant it's very difficult you know somebody has to always be watching the baby and so um you know she 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 took on that challenge and it hasn't come without its challenges it's been very difficult for her but also for me uh and so you know without without her being you know without her doing that i i wouldn't have taken this job at the startup
1: well kudos to her and congratulations to both of you
0: thank you yeah funny story actually so when i was leaving google i Right before I had left Google, we actually spent six weeks in Denver. We were considering a move uh, from Sacramento to Denver. We just love the area. Again, being a long distance runner, there's a lot to love with, with Denver being in altitude. They have amazing trails, great community for running. I was still kind of pursuing running a little bit on the side. Um, she's very outdoorsy. My wife is just an incredible skier, You know, loves hiking. And so there was a lot to love about Denver. We almost made the move. And then we came back home, we were gonna pack up our stuff and put some offers down on some houses that we liked in the areas that we liked. And uh, this was the same time that I was actually leaving Google to join the startup. I had started two days into the job and my wife came to me and told me that she was pregnant. And this is right after we gave up all of our you know, health benefits, <laughs> all the benefits that come with working at a good company, six months of paid paternity time off, And I went to go join probably the riskiest endeavor you could ever imagine. (laughs) And so, you know, we, uh, I kind of, we kind of laughed about it. And again, I don't think it would have changed any, any of my decisions, you know, to come to the startup, but yeah, it was just kind of a funny turn of events.
4: Nice. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Troy, what's the uh, most expensive pair of shoes that you've purchased?
0: Probably a pair of running shoes. If you know the Nike Vaporflies, the shoes that everyone says are cheating, uh, that make you fast. I uh, those are probably about three hundred bucks. So probably that.
4: Well, you got ripped off because our last guest <laughs> who bought those two said he bought them for two fifty. Oh
0: yeah, well I was. I was I'm just messing with you. I, no, they I'm are two fifty. Neither I'm just back
4: with you. It's just funny <laughs> that I've got two back-to-back guests talking about the vapor flies. and he did say that they are like legit, and they don't make him hurt at all after. So, uh, sounds like they're a pretty good shoe. I might have to check them out myself.
0: I don't think he was running fast enough then, because it doesn't matter what shoes you're wearing, but it hurts. <laughs>
4: <laughs> What's the uh, most expensive meal out that you paid for?
0: Uh, it was our honeymoon. Uh, I'll never do it again. But we we ate at this restaurant that was like it wasn't Michelin because it was in Hawaii. Uh, but it was like on par with Michelin. It was probably about 600, $700, something like that. And we left the restaurant and I picked up a pizza on the way home because it didn't even fill me up and it was just total BS. I'll never do it again. (laughs) Uh, Chipotle all the way.
4: Which restaurant was that at? I'm just curious. We just got back from Hawaii not too long ago.
0: Yeah, it was on Maui. Shoot. I don't remember the name. I'm super bad with names when it comes to restaurants. Uh, it was just a little hole in the wall. It was a husband and wife. Uh, the kind of the wife ran all the operations, seating, the guests, the menus, serving the meals. And then the husband was the chef. It was really good. It was just so small. I think they had 24 karat gold trickled on top of the peach, which was at the dessert. And it was literally a peach sliced in half. And they gave half to my wife and half to me. And they put a little bit of gold and they're like, don't eat too much of the gold. Cause it might hurt your stomach. And so we didn't even eat the gold but it was probably like 150 bucks for that course. And I was like, this is insane. Like if my parents knew I was doing <laughs> this, they would disown me. <laughs> I, was, I was like, I'll never do this again. So total rip off.
4: That's a good story. What, uh, what's the most fun that you've ever had with money?
0: Honestly, I'm gonna take a little bit of a different approach to answering that question. I, I don't wanna say just like a vacation or something. I mean, obviously those are very fun, but I would say something that I spend quite a bit of money on, on a regular basis, that I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would be able to perform at the level I do on a daily basis is I get a weekly deep tissue massage. And it it might sound funny at first, but like, it's a lot of money. I mean, it's, it's probably a hundred to $150 depending on, you know, where you go. And I do that on a weekly basis. So you know, on a monthly basis, I could spend anywhere from like five to $700 a month on this. It's a pretty big splurge, but it keeps me going. Like I, you know, I sit at a desk all day. I'm on the phone all day. And so like having this outlet has, has really made me just kind of stay healthy and in tip top shape. So that's that's what I would say It's probably like the most fun I've had with it. I mean, I look forward to it every week. I'd say it's, it's definitely, you know, been very helpful for me.
4: Do you go to the same spot or have them come to your house or what?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I go to this guy who, you know, specializes in working on like professional athletes. Um, I don't do these, you know, Thai massage, $50 places that where they like put a bunch of oil on you and you don't even, you get out of there and you're just like, what happened? Like I, I could play this meditation music on my phone at home (laughs) and stretch. So I actually go to a place where like, you know, you're, you're partially crying by the end of it. But I mean, it just, I, again, you know, I think it keeps you healthy. You look at these tip top athletes, they'll swear by it just keeps you in shape you know your back your neck everything's feeling yeah. good and you wake up motivated to work it's like there's no constraints for why you can't do your job
4: how long have you been doing the, the weekly massage
0: probably since i was 19 years old i'm 31 oh, wow. now so 12 years yeah and i've switched guys throughout the, the time obviously sure. i've lived in different places now but yeah, yeah. i always try i was try to find somebody that specializes in professional athletes
4: yeah that's cool i've got a i've got a buddy that's in uh Actually, CEO of another of a tech company, and, and and he does the same thing. They come to his house, he and his wife, every Monday night, yep. and he swears by it too. So I
0: do it Monday too. I do it Monday too. It's something about yeah. Mondays that that the worst day of the week. So
4: <laughs> good stuff. Uh, what's the, been the best bucket list experience that you've had?
0: I think for me, uh, it was probably just moments in my running career. Like I said, for the longest time, I really thought I was I was going to pursue athletics my entire life. I got off to a really good start when I was in high school. I was an all American and then in college I performed at a pretty high level. And so I always had this these ambitions of being in the Olympics. And so if I had to think back to like my best moments I've ever had, it would probably be, you know, some of these races that I performed at where I, I had really good performances. You know, there's videos of them online and occasionally I look back at it and it's just kind of a reminder to myself that like, you know, you 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 put the you put the work in, you delay gratification to a later date you can get the results you want. So I would say that's probably been my, you know, just my best experience bucket list type thing. What about the one you're looking forward to the most? Making an exit at the, at the startup company, (laughs) retiring, (laughs) taking some time off. (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, I, I, again, I, I I don't know. It's a tough question. I know I, I probably should have a better answer for this, but you know, I really, I really just think I set my life up in a way where like I, I made it so that I can be consistent with what I'm doing. You know, I do the massages. I I prioritize you know uh, health, fitness, so that I have longevity in this. And so I don't know. I'm I'm pretty happy with with what I'm doing. I mean, I, I joke about it retiring, but I actually like what I do. And so I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to go backpack around. My wife and I love hiking, and you know, and going to different trails. And like I said, she's a big skier. And so I think I look forward to the day where I could take some time off and uh, just get you know the opportunity to go do some of these things that I can't do in a demanding job cool cool uh what
4: has been the craziest thing you've ever done to earn money
0: oh man i i really don't know if i should say this one on camera um so actually my uh so my my friend and i uh that i told you about when we we moved up after college we had two thousand dollars to our name and i I did the math for you right we were paying six hundred dollars a month we only had about two two and a half months runway with food and everything else to actually survive and so while we were applying for jobs we were actually also looking for side opportunities to make money and so we did all kinds of things we actually tried to like day trade penny stocks with a few hundred dollars we thought we can go from $200 to like $2000 that did not work well we lost the money and then at one point we actually tried to do sperm donation which is pretty hilarious but there was a there was a uh there was a sperm clinic in Palo Alto not far away from where we lived oh my and gosh. we <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. Honestly, saying it out loud. I, I thought I would just keep this to the best man speech, but here I am saying it on a podcast. But yeah, we, we tried it and we thought, oh, we had this in the back. We're like, we had just graduated from UCLA athletics. We're like, we're in tip top shape. Like who are they going to take? We're, we're going to get this. And then um, we made it through the application process. And then, you know, they ask you all these questions when you actually go in there because, you know, the, 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 the parents want to know who the people are, right. That are, that are making these donations and then they actually found out about we have these matching butt tattoos that we got when we were in college, and it was a total red flag for them if anybody had tattoos. And so they, oh completely, my they completely removed us from the process. So uh, <laughs> we actually never, we actually never made the money. But <laughs> that's the story of, <laughs> of like probably the craziest thing I've ever done.
4: So wow, that is pretty wild. What's a closely held belief that you once had that uh, you've recently changed? Huh.
0: Closely held belief that I once had that I recently changed. I don't know. It's a good one. Let's come back to that one. Can we come back to that one?
4: Yeah, yeah, we can come back to it. Uh, What's a key lesson that you learned from childhood?
0: Key lesson I learned from childhood would, uh, I think, you know, you hear a lot of people say, focus on your weaknesses, make your weaknesses stronger. I actually think, you know, I took that to heart for a while and then I actually think it's the opposite. I think focus on your strengths. I mean, it's, it's what comes easy to you. And so once I learned that, a lot of doors opened up for me in my career you know i knew that i was an athlete and so you know using using those to my to my uh benefit actually worked out very well for me and i just thought about it like what have i done in the past that's that's made me successful in athletics you know it's the day in and day out grind it's the delayed gratification it's the writing the goal putting it on the wall and so i just focused on that and i actually found that a lot of doors opened up for me uh, and helped me a lot in my career. So focus on your strengths. Don't focus on your weaknesses.
4: You, you thought about your closely held belief yet?
0: I have a closely held belief that I still believe, but I, sure. I don't think I've... Yeah. Shoot it. All right. So a closely held belief uh, that I still believe, it's from my favorite book. It's called The Richest Man in Babylon. I don't know if you've heard of it, but really mm-hmm. interesting book. It's only a hundred pages. And there's a quote in the book that I love that I stick by every day. It says, the man who does more than he's paid for Will soon be paid for more than he does. And it goes back to kind of my whole core principle that I've had in my whole career, which is just focus on being the best you can be at your core competency. And eventually when your time comes, you'll be ready for it. You'll be prepared for that opportunity.
4: Awesome. Any last pieces of advice, words of advice that you would give to somebody who's just starting out?
0: Yeah, I would say the best advice I can give to somebody Um, and I tell people about this all the time. Now that I'm in a position where I'm interviewing people constantly for sales positions, you know, I find that too many times people focus on the little minuscule details that don't matter. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll join an interview. And the first question they ask you is, you know, what's the vacation like, or, you know, what are the benefits of this company? And I'm not saying that those things aren't important. It's important to, to know those pieces of information before you sign a contract, but focus on your story, focus on what makes you different. Learn how to tell a really good story about yourself because it's that first three to five minutes when you join an interview and the interviewer asks you the first question, which is always the same question. I don't care what role you're interviewing for. It's always, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Why do you want to join this company? They might say it in a different way, but it's always the same thing. And that's your opportunity to take a lot of their concerns off the table before they even get to those next questions. If you can tell a well crafted story, and there's no reason why you shouldn't, because you have infinite amount of time to prepare behind camera. You're gonna be very, you're gonna be far more successful in the interviews you have, and then actually in the job. You know, you'll connect with people if you can tell a really good story about yourself.
4: Awesome, that's Troy. The net worth, of two point two million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today.
2: Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Jace Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website, millionairesunveiled.com.
1: See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.